Welcome to another episode of Season 2 of the Panjway Podcast. As always, you can find our episodes on all podcast platforms, as well as YouTube and Facebook for the video episodes. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button on your platform of choice, and if you enjoy what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice five-star review. If you want to support the podcast financially, we've set up a few ways for you to do so this season. You can become a patron by hopping over to patreon.com slash Podcast and sign up for a small monthly donation. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can find us on Venmo at The Panjway Podcast. And last but not least, we've got a small selection of merchandise in our store, so if you head over to thepanjwaypodcast.com and click on the store tab, you'll see stickers and other merchandise, and who knows what might come down the pipeline. So remember, on all three platforms, that's The Panjway Podcast, P-A-N-J-W-A-I Podcast. Thank you. I know when I switch to flights, the difference in quality of the fabric between like the regular like ACUs and the flight ACUs is like night and day. Oh yeah. They're just complete garbage. Just trash. But anyway, we are uh here talking about uniforms, but we're actually here to talk to our guest, John Orbaugh, who's currently a Sergeant First Class. Yes. Awesome. Sergeant First Class, John Orbaugh. Uh Many of you may find this interesting. John Orbaugh is not an infantryman. He's not a cab scout. He's not a tanker. He's not a pilot. He's not a special forces operator. What is your MOS, John? Wheeled vehicle mechanic. Wheeled vehicle mechanic. And this wheeled vehicle mechanic has more combat experience than most of you listening. <laughs> Shut the fuck up and listen to him. <laughs> this wheeled vehicle mechanic has more combat under his belt than pretty much everybody E6 and below in the infantry right now. <laughs> most uh, most infantrymen of John's generation as well. Really? Yeah. There's. I'm going to say it. Truly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, John, it's a, it's a true privilege to have you on. We've been looking forward to it for a while. Mm-hmm. So we we always kind of open these things up is kind of give you an opportunity to talk about why you joined the army, why you chose to become a wheeled vehicle mechanic, uh, and kind of the briefly the kind of the turn of events that led to you coming to Spurwangar. Yeah, so um, gosh, I joined the army in two thousand four. I had just graduated technical college. I had got a master welder's degree, and uh, finished that. And wasn't married. Didn't have no bills. No kids. So I was like, well, shoot, let's go do something else. So I decided to go join the Army. (laughs) And, um, yeah, so joined the Army in early 2004. Went to basic training in May 2004. Um, That was in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Then went to AIT. Relax in Jackson. Relax in Jackson, yep. (laughs) Yep. it, It was pretty easy. You know, it wasn't... You just had to try. <laughs> yeah. But uh, after that, went to AIT in Maryland at Aberdeen Proving Grounds. Hmm. Um, after Aberge- uh, Aberdeen, my first duty station was Fort Lewis, Washington with 123 Infantry Tomahawks. Who would have thought? Ironic. Yep. Yeah. Who would have thought you'd end up yep. right back with them? Sure did. 
Well, I didn't want to leave them when I when I had to leave them, but uh, mm-hmm. I guess it worked out with them. I went to Iraq with them in 2006, 2007. Um, after that deployment, I got stationed in Korea. And after mm-hmm. Korea, ended up at Fort Stewart, Georgia. Third ID. <laughs> Good old Fort Stewart. Good old Fort the old, Stewart, yep. The old broken TV. <laughs> old broken TV, yep. <laughs> Then, uh, now, why, why did you choose a wheeled vehicle mechanic? Well, I had always liked uh, fixing things. Um, really, all of my knowledge before the military was all welding. I went mm-hmm. to a couple of welding schools, a high school, then Tulsa Welding School. Then um, I was good at fixing things. I just didn't know how to explain or I didn't really know the name of the part I was replacing i just knew what it did <laughs> right right so and you know when i joined the army I, I wanted to do something different than welding so it's like hey let's go be a mechanic i like doing that and it all started Fair from enough. there little did you know <laughs> little did i know yep yeah when you joined up as a wheel vehicle mechanic did you uh did you ever think you'd end up somewhere as crazy as panjoy no, no. So I mean, it's a it's a support MOS. So you know, I didn't really think I'd ever see any combat anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned really quickly that when the combat MOSs need people, the first place they look is the motor pool. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. I mean, it's even true. in Iraq, um, I was a wrecker operator. So. Anytime a vehicle got blown up or anything like that, mm-hmm. you know, I had to go out and uh, recover that vehicle. So that's what got me in combat in Iraq. Then Afghanistan, mm-hmm. you know, being 2012, you know, I, I didn't think anything big was going to be going on. You know, I thought it was going to be a pretty easy, laid-back deployment. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> we know all know how that went. <laughs> <laughs> Now, to be fair, you probably could have been a little bit more laid back, but you had this this tendency of volunteering to come out with us. You yeah, did. so that's true. I, I've always been the person that you know I'm not going to sit back on the cop and you know live the good life while all y'all guys are going out and just you know getting tore up pretty bad. So I'm one of them that you know if whatever I can bring to the fight, I'm, I'm going to bring it. I mean, that's just one. That's my job. And two, that's just who I am. Yeah, man. Well, I remember uh, on our very first firefight, you went on that patrol with us, and we ended up getting into a good, thick, bushy firefight. And and uh, somehow at the end of the thing, you and I ended up next to each other. And I just remember looking at you and be like, well, that was, that was it. And you were just like, yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> like you were there, well, 100% committed. Our mechanics out there slinging lead with us. Like, who would have thought oh, yeah. that would ever happen? <laughs> well, prior to, to that firefight... You know, I had been in firefights and convoys, but I mm-hmm. had never been on a, uh, you know, a dismounted firefight. So that was the first for me. And, yeah. you know, it was, it was really different because, you know, you don't really have nothing to hide behind. And yeah, uh, you're naked out there. <laughs> and, yeah. No and, up armor. You know, no. it's, when it's your first time, you know, you're kind of slow to get your situational awareness and all that. So, you know, I remember... You know, the firefight starts, everybody on both sides of me falls down for cover, and I'm still standing up like, 
Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I dove down and I was towards the back. I didn't know what we were shooting at, but you know, I was going to shoot at something. So there was this sure, house. In, yeah. Yeah. You know, there's this house in front of me. Looked like it hasn't been lived in in probably a hundred years. But let me tell you yeah. what, man, I put two magazines in that window. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you're welcome. But well, that America. was the house we were getting shot at from, though. It no, I don't think been. this one was. No, this was on back oh, no? a little bit. Yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't nobody there. <laughs> well, that was the name of the game in Panjway, man. It's like, oh, just yeah. whatever looks like it could be a fighting position, dump a magazine yep. into it and then oh, yeah. move on to the next one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yep. you're fighting ghosts there. Yeah, it, that's definitely. A, man. That is the title of this episode. That is a great, great <laughs> statement. Fighting ghosts. Yeah, fighting we really ghost. were. Yeah. yeah. That's right, man. So, I mean, anytime you start taking contact, you start thinking, where where could they possibly be? Yeah. you never seen them. Well, you could kind of hear like general cardinal directions. You, you could like, get a general eh, idea. That yeah. way yeah, they're, they're probably in that tree line and in that 50 right. meter stretch this, of roads. <laughs> yeah. This sector of fire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but really, you just look at where everybody else is shooting, and you shoot the same way. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, you might not hit them, but you'll scare them. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's the right. name of the game. It's all suppressive fire. Yep. We're not For firing sure. wildly. We're suppressing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it says a lot, man, that you were, like, at that time, early in the deployment, we had plenty of people. We had tons of people that we were like yeah dude let's bring the mechanic let's do it like you had to have instilled a lot of confidence in you know, not only our platoon level leadership but company level leadership for them to even consider that so yeah, yeah kudos mean, to you because you made a quick impression <laughs> yeah well just there to do my job so yeah you, you went out there scurried with us early on but you know you had a you did a lot of work on that deployment that actually we hadn't even really n- noticed you know, and there's no offense there. It's just we were off doing our thing, and oh, yeah. everyone's off doing their own thing. But uh, as a qualified bulldozer operator, <laughs> yeah. uh, it seemed like you kind of got you kind of got hoard out a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, really, it all started with you know um, just going out with one of our three platoons. Um, then after that, the uh, ODA teams would come ask for support. So I would take the bulldozer out and help them build checkpoints. And every now right. and then, uh, the engineers and EOD would come come and get me so I could help them, um, you know, uncover some things. <laughs> sure, sure. And I mean, in, in addition to all the, the random stuff that you did on the cop, those checkpoints were actually a pretty big thing. And early on... One of the very first things we did on that deployment was help the ODA build a checkpoint on Route Brown. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were there helping out with that, right? Yeah. So um, I, I want to say by the time we got, you know, kind of settled in Spurvangar and uh, was out doing missions, they were kind of halfway f- done with that, that first checkpoint, if right. I remember correctly. So really, I mean, when we started helping them, it was just to get the second roll of HESCOs uh, filled in, then gravel, then the Connex put in. Right. And for for civilians that are watching, the HESCOs, and we'll show a picture up here, um, it's basically a big basket. It's probably the size of like, 
I don't know, three or four 50 gallon drums. And it's just like this big wire and canvas basket you pour dirt and rocks into. And essentially, it makes one part of the wall of a base. So you can string these things all together and create a wall. You can create buildings out of them, theoretically. And because they're just filled with dirt, they're fairly impenetrable. Um, anything up to a massive explosion. So we would use those to build these little bases and outposts. We use them as like the outer walls for bases or any number of uses. Um, but filling them and putting them together and filling them was a pretty time-consuming Tedious. exercise, unless you had heavy equipment, which oh, yeah. John was able to provide. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Having having some heavy equipment will really make your life a little bit easier. <laughs> oh yeah. And, Between uh, those poor guys up in the Corngall are filling those things by hand. Ooh, I know, man. They, you know, just I, I couldn't imagine ooh. that. Brutal. Yeah, fuck that. It's like you're you're digging the hole next to the Hesco to fill the hole the 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 Tesco with dirt. Ugh. So, <laughs> mad props to our our buddies in the Corngall if they they did it. But um, so what was uh? So you said you were helping out with the ODA at that checkpoint, bringing in gravel. Um, kind of filling out what else happened. Yeah, so, um, you know, that checkpoint was just, it should have took about a week to build. And, gosh, I think three weeks into it, it might have been longer than that. Um, you know, we were still trying to build this checkpoint. Um, every day, we just, we just got harassing gunfire. All day, uh-huh. every day. And, uh, and it was just, they did not like us building that checkpoint there. So, um... No, they, they yeah. very much hated that checkpoint. It's entire oh, they existence. Did. They did. They did not like it. But, and, you know, they made us really work to put that checkpoint up. Um, after we had the HESCOs put up, um, we were supposed to went out one day. Well, we did go out one day, and we put a, uh... A 20-foot conix inside that checkpoint so the uh, Afghan police would have some shelter well the next well that night they they were supposed to stay out there that night and guard it because we were going to come out the next morning to uh, spread some gravel inside that checkpoint right. like, so, as the, as like the floor or the yeah. or whatever of the base, right? Yeah. Yeah. So pretty much when it rains, you know, they wouldn't be all muddy, and you know, they would have, you know, some mm-hmm. good ground to walk and operate on. So um, yeah, so we got the the Connex put out there, and we kind of put it in the corner of that checkpoint, but we left about a five foot gap, you know, between the Connex and the Hesco barrier, so people could walk around that Connex. Right, yeah. Yeah, so uh, we came out there the next morning, uh, started spreading gravel, and I had McGuigan out there, Specialist McGuigan, which is a mechanic, and uh, we had brought the bobcat out to spread that gravel. And um, man, I think I, I think I had walked to the truck to uh, refill my camel pack with water, and all of a sudden this this huge explosion just, just went off. I mean, it... It rattled the ground. It rattled the vehicles. Hmm. And I mean, first thing I could think of is, dang, did a mortar come in? But, hmm. you know, usually I've been in mortar attacks and usually you can hear a mortar coming in. Yeah. But 
you know, I didn't hear nothing like that. And I look back and the entrance of that checkpoint, you could just see dust just rolling out of it. Like a, almost like a sandstorm coming in. That's what it looked like. Mm, sure. So uh, I run in there and McGuigan, he was out of the Bobcat and asked him, I was like, are you okay? He was like, yeah, I'm okay. But he just had, you know, his eyes were this big around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, he was all right. Then uh, I ran over to the other entrance of that checkpoint. And by this time, you know, the, the SF guys, you know, they were already suppressing fire. You know, they're, they were doing their thing. And I looked over to my left, and that's where I seen somebody doing something. I didn't know what it was, but when I looked over there, that's when I noticed uh, somebody had stepped on a pressure plate IED inside that checkpoint. So, so yeah, I come to find out that the Afghan police didn't guard the checkpoint that night. And the uh-huh. Taliban snuck in and, you know, they put a IED in between that connex and the HESCO barriers. And it was the Special Forces ODA uh, team captain who stepped on it, right? Yep. It was their commander. Yep. So, hmm. you know, that was just a start to a rough day. And um, so uh, the medevac came in. They flew him out. EOD came in, uh, swept inside that checkpoint. Didn't find anything. Told us, to, uh, you know, all clear. You can get back to work. And see here. I don't know. We all we all got back to work, and um, on the side of the connex, uh, in between the connex and the Hescos, we'd all been standing around, just kind of watching McGuigan spread gravel. And. Right. Uh, we had been, gosh, standing all in the area for good 15, 20 minutes. Um, you know, we even took our gear off and laid it down in that area so we could take a break. Hmm. And um, McGuigan comes with a bobcat bucket. He uh, moves some gravel out of the way. And right where we were standing, pulls up another pressure plate with the bucket. Hmm. And, of course, you know, we all take off running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we wasn't going to hang out in that area no more. But um, mm. yeah, there was another IED right there. We were standing all over it. Um, I guess just the way the gravel was laid down, you know, it was supporting our mm. weight. So we didn't set it off. Jeez, um, man. That's yeah, so, crazy, man. Yeah, EOD came out. They blew that one and <laughs> said it was good to go again. <laughs> Did you sure this time, time? Guys. Are you yeah. sure? <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I mean, those two are the only two that we found. So, hmm. but, yeah, it was just things like that. Just, man, it, it made that checkpoint a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it never stopped being a pain in the butt. That checkpoint never stopped. was a thorn in the side the whole yep. time. Yep. And you could set the clock by Every it. single day. Yep. Every single night. Right after evening prayer. You'd be like, and... Yeah. Gunfire. Now we were lucky <laughs> it wasn't at us. You know, they, yeah. they did it all down there. Yeah. So every once in a while, a stray bullet would come up towards us. But for the most part, it was all up there. But like, every, And every once in a while, when a stray bullet would come in, it always landed in the motor pool 
where the mechanics work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somehow. Um, like, I feel like it's a common it's a common thing for you guys to be sitting around smoking and joking <laughs> and it's like, whack, here come a freaking yeah. bullet hit the Hesco above I mean, you. We were living in Connexes and we had Hesco barriers in front of them. And them Hesco barriers were just full of bullet holes where rounds yeah, yeah. had came in and hit them Hescos. Um, we even found a a bullet in one of the airlines of one of our trucks. Oh, I remember so, that. Yeah. 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 So, well, I remember they made a rule saying that we could not go down to the motor pool between like certain hours, like just as a precaution, be like, hey, when after evening prayers, just stay away from the motor pool until it gets dark. But once it was dark, everything calmed down. They're like, okay, do whatever you need to do. Yeah. We you didn't guys get live that down memo. there. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get that. Memo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were some, some afternoons that, you know, we were laying on our belly on the ground because bullets were just whizzing by so close. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's important to note that the way that the the motor pool sat on Spurwangar, it was more exposed than most other places it kind of was slanted down it was on a lower portion of the base Mm -hmm. so rounds that kind of would either flown over the top uh, of our area or into a hesco and other spots tended to somehow just land in the motor pool it's just like this weird freak of uh the design of the place i think it was like it's probably like aop just spraying and praying down at the checkpoint and just lobbing rounds and those rounds would end up Mm -hmm. or when they when the when the Taliban would hit the checkpoint, there was like that uh, the cheeky mofo who would just lob a few <laughs> rounds over into the American base, you know. So he's just yeah. kind of getting an effort with his AK, and a few of those uh, a few of those always ended up in the motor pool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's, that's exactly how those bullets always landed in the motor pool. It's just you know the angle of the bullet, and just yeah, you know what they were shooting at in the the area. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Kind of where you guys were laid out. It just it was just weird because it wasn't something that we really had to worry too much about the on the rest house. of the base. Yeah, yeah, definitely not at the schoolhouse for sure. Oh yeah. Um, now at one point during the deployment, and this is one thing that we did we forgot to talk about in the pre-interview, but I want to hear the story because it's pretty pretty epic. Uh, did you roll a cl- a crane off of the side of Sperwangar, or well... were you on a crane that rolled off the side of Sperwangar? Not that it was your fault, but... That wasn't necessarily me doing that, but... Um, so what had happened was... <laughs> so we had that old crane. And yeah. that crane was actually contracted out to Spurwingar. And mm-hmm. um, it didn't belong to us. So the guy that was always driving it, he was hired to use it on Spurwingar. Which is one of the locals. So... On top of the hill, we had one of them old, I think it might have been an old camera on a pole. I don't know what it was called. Yeah, the raid but, camera. Yeah, but pretty much they had a, they wanted it back. I don't know if it was the, the contract had ran out on it, but somebody wanted it back, so we had to get it off the top of the hill. Oh, jeez. And, yep, so the only way to get it off the top of the hill was take the crane up there, um, pick it up, then bring it over so we could drive a vehicle up there to pull it back down the hill. Well, that crane was, it was a crappy crane and he didn't have enough power to make it up the hill. So I had to hook the bulldozer up to the crane and drag it up the hill. 
<laughs> oh my god this is yeah, so, so, man there's so yeah. many safety briefs involved oh my geez, yeah <laughs> so yeah and this crane barely fit on the road going up that hill so we had to really hug the inside of the hill mm-hmm. and so anyways uh we got it up there we got the camera over where we needed it and i told him i'm like look you know you don't do anything but steer the vehicle uh, you're going to use me as the brakes Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty much so we didn't get the, any slack or anything in the chain. Yeah. And I was I was using some pretty big chains. I was using some five eighths inch chains. And but anyways, we were going back down the hill, and he kept on, for some reason, he kept on like putting the vehicle in drive and coming forward to readjust where it was at on the hill. Uh-huh. I kept on telling him, don't do that. Don't do that because, you know, we don't need to get slack in these chains right. and break the chains. Well, sure enough, he kept on doing it. He kept on doing it. And he pretty much drove all the way to the back of the bulldozer for some reason. And all of a sudden, his his crane, the vehicle engine, cut off. Well, sure enough, when it cut off, when that thing started rolling back, all that slack in the chain came out. Well, it broke the chain. Mm-hmm. And when it broke the chain, the crane started rolling off the back of the hill. And I'm talking about at the very last second, this guy jumps out of that crane. <laughs> at, and it rolls probably a good four or five times down the hill. Really? So, yeah. Oh, so come man. to find out, his brakes didn't even work. <laughs> didn't even have brakes on that. So when he was driving up, he didn't have no brakes, you know, to keep the slack out of the chains. So, oh, yeah, man. that could have been worse. I mean, the dude didn't get killed. Scared him, but, mm-hmm. yeah. See, the story we heard was that it was you that jumped out at the last second. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I had just, I had pulled him up the hill and was, you know, being his brakes, from when it's going sure, back down yeah. the hill. But no, it, mm. I wasn't in the crane. <laughs> Good Lord, man. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that the chain broke and you didn't get pulled down the freaking <laughs> yeah. mountain, mountainside oh, yeah, like, by a crane. God. Yeah, if we would have been a, probably another 20 foot up that hill, that crane would have uh, rolled down on top of the building where the A&A was staying. Oh, really? Yeah, so it could have been Man, way, way worse had a than a rough it. day. Yeah, it would have yeah. been bad. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> that's the nature of uh, being deployed, man. That's like I said, that's one of the things that gets overlooked a lot because you always talk about the firefights and the IED strikes, but you forget about those random moments of just having to make do with what you got at hand. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like it, it's like, oh, we got a shitty crane that doesn't have brakes driven by some random Afghan dude. I guess we'll pull it up the mountain with a bulldozer. You know, like that's just, <laughs> you got to, uh, you know, adapt, adapt to oh, the yeah. circumstances. Oh, yeah. If we were in I'll tell you, that Garrison, bulldozer adapted. Man, that, that bulldozer did so much work in <laughs> Afghanistan. Man. It should have earned its own meritorious service medal <laughs> yeah. because man, it, it built roads. It pulled it recovered vehicles it built checkpoints mm-hmm. it knocked down orchards it did deforestation projects it did poppy elimination like what didn't you do with that bulldozer i uh, didn't 
win the global war on terrorism. Are you sure? <laughs> but we tried. We what tried. brand was that thing anyways? Was it was it a caterpillar or John Deere or something? Uh man, Do I don't even know. Uh the warranty ran out on that thing in nineteen eighty nine. It was an antique, man. Yeah. Oh, it was uh, missing it, armor. It, I tell you what, they they built that thing up. Like yeah. that thing, like the, the armored um crew compartment was pretty freaking impressive and that was like the one vehicle you could not get stuck everything else got stuck but man you could drive you could just drive that plow through a grape row with that thing like it wasn't even there. oh yeah well that was my biggest concern when we did go out with a bulldozer was getting it stuck because you know if we would have got that thing stuck we would have been out mm-hmm. there for days waiting on something to come from kandahar to get us out mm-hmm yeah so that's true that was my biggest concern is don't get the bulldozer stuck and we did like two times that i know of we got it stuck once was in Najat. yep we got it stuck and then the second time was the day we're going to talk about here in a couple minutes but that wasn't really stuck it got blown up <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was it was not a fault of the terrain really it was more of a fault of uh you know, enemy fire, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I've always said that if we really cared about winning the war in Pangeway, we just would get in every infantryman their own bulldozer and there'd be nowhere that we couldn't have gone. <laughs> oh yeah, well, there would have been nothing left to hide behind. I can tell you that. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, every fighting position in Pangeway had been plowed through. Oh yeah, the bulldozer. Oh, they, oh yeah, open yeah. eye. whatever. Yeah, when they heard that thing coming, they knew something was getting destroyed. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, they did not like that thing. No. Not no. at all. No, um, it was slow, I remember, it was loud. Mm-hmm. It was a target. They shot it at it a, a lot. It was a target. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember but you guys, when you guys plowed that road to go pull the Minotaur out. Like, if yeah. we didn't have a bulldozer, I don't know what we mm-hmm. would have done. Like, there was no other way yeah. to pull that thing out. Like, you literally bulldozed a kilometer-long road just to pull that little... Remote yeah. control bobcat out. <laughs> yeah, that Minotaur, that was a yeah, that was a bad idea. <laughs> that that idea wasn't thought through. No. <laughs> no. It, it, it was thought about thirty percent of the way through. They're like, it'd be really cool if so we had a portable mine roller. Yeah, that's a really good <laughs> idea. But then they didn't think about the second half. It's like what if our thing that's supposed to hit IEDs actually hits an IED? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so yeah. I guess we have to bring it back. We'll be covered. Well, how do we bring it? Yes. We'll recover it. With yeah. what? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, can, even when that's we, why we that's why we do deadlifts. Even when, <laughs> sir, that's why we do deadlifts. If you're listening, <laughs> uh, there's a throw out to uh, Captain Kitching, who, to his credit, I don't think he understood how big the uh, the Minotaur was, but when they Actually first told was. him that they had, yeah, then when they rolled it into the stream. He's like, well, just get like six guys down there and deadlift it out. They're like, sir, this thing is 8,000 pounds. <laughs> oh. One of the classic kitchen quotes of the deployment. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I guess we can transition into talking about September 20th, uh, which is when the bulldozer really showed its uh, its durability. Mm-hmm. So what what was actually because that whole thing started the, on the nineteenth for you right the day before? Yeah, was that uh yeah so 
we had gone out and right there beside that checkpoint we built, um, there was an orchard. Mm-hmm. And um, we had to clear all the trees out of that orchard because they were pretty much, the Taliban was using that orchard to sneak up on that checkpoint. So, uh, yeah, we went out that afternoon and knocked down all the trees. The uh, next morning we had to come out and the uh, mud wall that was around that orchard, we had to tear that mud wall down. And, uh, yeah, we had uh, been tearing it down for, I don't know, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And um, got to the probably about the last 10 foot of that wall. And, yep, there went a boom. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's when I hit an IED right there. The last ten foot, of, or yeah, ten foot of that wall. Do you think you pushed the wall over onto the IED and it blew up, or do you think you hit it with a bulldozer? No. Nah, so, what I had learned out in that area was, mm-hmm. if I kept my blade about six inches in the ground, then mm-hmm. if I, you know, came across a pressure plate, most of the time I would, I would, I wouldn't set the pressure plate off but I would slide it enough to where it would disconnect from the the IED itself. So mm-hmm. I would always do that. I always kept my bucket under, under the ground for that reason, and I would always keep dirt pushed up in front of me. So if I did high, mm. hit IED, that dirt would muffle it. Mm-hmm. And That's yeah. really so, smart thinking. Yeah, it's good yeah, thinking, well, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, you learn little things to keep yourself alive out there. But, mm-hmm. but I think that's what set it off. But, um, you know, it, it was an anti-personnel IED. It wasn't nothing big. Um, mm-hmm. I think after that went off, I think I opened the door and I yelled at y'all, hey, I found one. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so that, that didn't really mess the bulldozer up that much. Um, really, it just kicked up a lot of dust, if anything. Yeah. And if memory serves me, that wasn't the first time you hit an IED with the bulldozer. Like you had um, knocked, you had been in pretty close proximity, either knocking the wall onto one or yeah, something so like that I in had, the past, right? Yeah, I had um, not, you know, set some IEDs off, knocking down a wall or just pushing dirt up. But yeah, you know, in, in that AO, I wasn't really concerned about big IEDs. Um, I was right. like, I, said, mm-hmm. I was more concerned about getting that thing stuck than hitting an IED that yeah. would that would hurt it. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, so we got the wall knocked down, and I think we were starting to leave. And uh, was it Lieutenant Kohler y'all had? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Lieutenant Kohler's like, hey, uh, we got to knock down this roll of trees before we leave. And um, it's like, all right, cool. So I started knocking down that roll of trees, and the last tree I had to knock down was this it was a huge tree. I mean, this thing was probably about three foot in diameter. And wow. Yeah, in Afghanistan, that's that's a very old, tough it's tree. Unusual. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, as a matter of fact, the bulldozer wouldn't even push it over. I had to back up, and I would get like a running start to kind of, you know, hit it yeah. with the bulldozer, and the tree still hmm. wasn't moving. So, probably about the third time. I rammed that tree. All of a sudden, I mean, it was just this bright light, a lot of heat, 
And I was sitting in the floorboard of the bulldozer. Hmm. And I remember looking up and my my ballistic windows were still orange from the heat of the explosion. Whoa. And wow. yeah, and I looked up and the there were all the leaves in that tree had been blown out. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I was thinking was, why would they put an IED right there? Because it was, that tree was a good 10 foot off the trail. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I just, I was sitting there, I was kind of slow at the time. And uh, I was just sitting there and just trying to figure out why an IED would be right there. But, um, you know, I finally came to my senses and was like, okay, I got to get up and I got to get out of this bulldozer because um, it was smoking. It was sparks going everywhere. And, uh, yeah, so I got out of the bulldozer, and Sarah Ott was like, hey, we got to get you out of here. That's uh, two explosives within 30 minutes. So they casavac me out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But It also but yeah. disabled the bulldozer as well, didn't it? Oh, yeah, that bulldozer, yeah, it was done. And, uh, mm. you know, come to find out, we, we all learned later on that afternoon that it was an RPG that hit the bulldozer. Mm. And, um, you know, I, I was I was very lucky because that bulldozer was missing armor on the side that the RPG hit. If that mm-hmm. RPG would have been six inches higher, it would have came straight in the cab of that bulldozer. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. So I got very lucky on that one. And that was the uh, it was it was it was fairly unusual for us to run into RPGs. Yeah, uh, I can only think of it happened three or four times you know, that we actually got yeah. RPG shot at us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was there weren't a lot of them. I just I just don't think they had a ton of them. Yeah, um, and it's just a hard weapon to employ in that area because you need line of sight and they don't fly straight. Um, which was why it was exceptional that they hit you. Yeah. Um, and then, unfortunately, later that day, what I would presume to be the same RPG team uh, hit the vehicle in which uh, Staff Sergeant Swindle was uh, was riding, and unfortunately, uh, he lost his life that day. Yep. Um, yeah, that was a that was a rough day for us. Yeah. And it was just a. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about the difference in inches and the proximity and chance and like you know, the, the specific set of circumstances that had to lead up to something like that happening is just so unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and who knew that they had that many RPGs? They hadn't really shown a willingness to use them before. We were didn't have a whole lot of apprehension about staging trucks out on the road as a result, and, um, you know, they were there, and they knew how to use them, so... Unfortunately, yeah, that I, was. Um, I think the one that hit me was a different RPG than the one that hit the Matt V. Sart Swindle was in. Um, yeah, I th- I'm pretty sure the one that hit the Matt V. was an armor piercing RPG, yeah, and mm-hmm. the one that hit my bulldozer. I don't think it was armor piercing because um, there was it was like it was almost like the bulldozer had been shot by a shotgun with buckshot in it. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot of, inside of my metal hoses, there was a lot of little round, little like buckshot hit it. So, yeah. Uh, so I, I think, well, they I, know, used I think, uh, 
an airburst because I remember we talked to Sergeant Ho about it in his interview, and he's like, "Yeah, it exploded right next to it, or like mm-hmm. it hit, like on the corner of the thing." It was I think it was definitely a uh, designed to uh, explode before the target, kind of like mm-hmm. that's how they that's how they use them to shoot down helicopters. Is they I don't know they, they, I don't know if it dials like a Gustav round does or whatnot how they set the airburst, but. Basically, they set an airburst, and that's what it was. That's what I, yeah. that's what I think, at least. Yeah, I mean, it could have been, but yeah, it was a rough day. Now you didn't have to put, drive the other bulldozer, right? You were done for the day. Yeah, no, I was done for the day. Um, I went to see the medics uh, just to check me out. Then um, one, two, three happened to have another bulldozer that they sent over mm-hmm. to us, and um, that day I sent Specialist Lowry out to finish that mission. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I was done for the day. Um, now you guys were primarily we uh, track vehicle mechanics. With you being the exception, you were the only wheeled vehicle mechanic on the rest of the mechanics team. Um, was it difficult, kind of transitioning them over to to work on the MATVs and the vehicles like that? You know, um, I had Sart Huggins, I had Specialist McGuigan. Lowry, Vera, and Toussaint, and them guys, you know, they were on top of their game. Um, Sergeant Huggins, you know, uh, he knew his job. He just knew mechanicing in general. So, you know, there there was a couple of, like, maybe some detailed things that I would have to show them, but overall, you know, them guys, they had the motor pool under control. You know, they, they were on top. They were on top of it. Now you guys supported a variety of missions in adi- in addition to your normal day to day job as a as a mechanic. So I guess before we go into some of the other stuff you did, what was like kind of your normal day to day routine or week to week routine down in the motor pool? And then we'll go into some of the crazy, uh, more of the crazy stuff that you guys got found yourselves wrapped right um, up into. So really, uh, we couldn't really fix anything too big because you know we right. didn't we didn't really have the tools. Um, Getting parts there was a nightmare. So, I mean, mechanicing, mechanical-wise, you know, we didn't really have to fix a lot of things. Right. Um, so, really, um, a day for us was, you know, we'd wake up. Um, most of the time, there was somebody down there needing our help to try to fix something. Right. And, uh, you know, if it was something small, we could fix it. If not, then, you know, we'd have to look up the part then uh, Tucson would have to order it from Kandahar. Right. So I mean, basically that was a that was a day for us. It wasn't nothing too crazy. Because we didn't really use the vehicles a lot too, so. No, no, they got pretty minimal use, and when they did get used, it wasn't for very long periods of time. If anything, they spent an excessive amount of time idling. Yeah, yeah. And as yeah. I understand it, air conditioning was not a priority repair. Um... It wasn't that. It's just, like I said, the the tools we needed to put right. Freon in them, we just couldn't get. I mean, we just, we wasn't no, set up no. to work on things. You know, if it was something big, we had to send the whole vehicle to Kandahar. Yeah. Well, and so, also, I mean, it's also worth mentioning a lot of the systems in those vehicles were under contract. It's so like yep. the Crow systems yep. and some of the weapon stuff, the cameras. There's a lot in those vehicles that... You guys probably even technically could have fixed, but you weren't allowed to touch. Is that 
Yep, that's spot on. Like, yeah, especially the crow system. Like, um, we could kind of troubleshoot them and take a guess of what we thought it was. But yeah. you know, that was another system that we just didn't have the the tools to fix. And it wasn't practical for us to go to Kandahar every time we had a air conditioner go out or a crow system go down. And sometimes it's like, hey, crow's down on that vehicle. We don't have a crow. Yep. You know, it's a, yep. it was just the way that it was. Um, which, I, more times than I care to admit, that we went outside the wire without a working weapon system just because that's what we had to do. You know, yep. I don't know what the requirements for a platoon were, but I know, it, I know for sure it wasn't that every weapon system worked because I don't think it ever was the case. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, and even when we did have to send things to Kandahar, we had to send it to Zangabad first, have it go through one, two, three. Then one, oh. two, three would send it to Kandahar. One, two, somebody from one, two, three would pick it up. Then they would take it to wherever to shop it needed to be fixed. Oh, so, really? Okay. Yeah. So there was a lot of, lot of different hands that our equipment went through before it was fixed. Yeah. And I'm guessing the turnaround had to have been ridiculous before you finally got something oh, it, back. Yeah, it was crazy. Well, most of the time, um, you know, we couldn't find our equipment. You know, we'd send a, a mine hound over or an, a weapon or an optic and Lieutenant Boss would call and nobody would know where that equipment's at. Jeez. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, we spent more time hunting down our equipment than anything. Which, I mean, I, it wasn't nobody's fault. It was just a lot no, of... No, I mean, of, it's, it's war. Well, I mean, it's yeah. somebody's fault. You know, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> maintaining, maintaining accountability of equipment is a fairly simple job that somebody should be doing properly. But it is war and shit happens yeah. and priorities shift. You oh, know, yeah. someone's priority one day could be maintaining accountability of all the SI and the repair shop. And the next day, like, hey, you're going on a convoy. Like, then, then they're going on a convoy and that's their job. You know, and then if something happens to them, then now no one knows accountability. So I get it. But at the same time, yep. come on, Army. Like, you have computers. <laughs> like, this shouldn't be hard. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that's what you're supposed to be doing, you know, or that's what your day-to-day -day is. But, I mean, what are some of the other projects you guys kind of got tasked out for? We didn't really get tasked out a lot. I mean, every now and then, we would go over to a different fob to, uh, you know, pick up parts mm -hmm. or, you know, things like that. Now, we did have a wrecker out there that we didn't really use that much, but that was another thing that the mechanics were responsible for. Right. I think I used a, a few times. I mean, mostly just recovering IED blasts. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, know they recovered ours out on the road. and. Yeah, we did. But, I mean, that that the wrecker we had was not set up for off-road use <laughs> i mean that thing would get stuck uh, yeah. on wet grass no lie <laughs> so i mean really you know if we had to recover something that was off a really hard packed road then we couldn't do it with that wrecker you know we had to send a bulldozer right. out to drag it to a spot to hook to yeah yet another use of the wonderful bulldozer <laughs> another use yeah, yeah. 
But so you guys also you helped um, on a couple occasions. I know we talked about the Route Brown checkpoint, but also you built a couple other ones. One of them with uh, the same SFODA, uh, and you got into a pretty yep. good gunfight out there. Uh, kind of where we ended up doing Operation Throat Chop. And then also mm-hmm. there was another mission with the SEALs and Afghan police. Yep. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, so towards the end of our de- deployment, um, right there, the first checkpoint we had built off of Route Brown, we started building another checkpoint. Gosh, it probably wouldn't even... It wasn't Maybe a hundred yards. Yeah, it wasn't far at all. Mm-hmm. But... Because it took us so long to build the other two, um, somebody, I guess, got smart and flew in some Navy SEALs and some Afghan commandos to pull security for us. And, um, but yeah, you know, they did a real good job of uh, pulling security for us, of course. And uh, we got that checkpoint put up pretty quickly. Yeah. It was a smaller one, too. You kind of like built it into an existing compound, right? Yeah, I mean, it. gosh, it was probably, I don't know, maybe about a 50 by 50 checkpoint. It's pretty hmm. small, yeah. Yeah, because that one actually was off, built off a walking trail. Okay. Yep. Yeah, because I remember we, we accidentally came across that on a patrol once, and we had heard something about a checkpoint being built, but then we randomly saw it. We're like, that's what they built? Like, it was mm-hmm. so out of the way and incognito mm-hmm. and, like, just hidden. Like, I think someone almost shot somebody because they saw somebody with a weapon inside the checkpoint. <laughs> like, wait, no, yeah, that's a yeah, checkpoint. That one... I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a small one. It, it only took, like, I want to say three days to build. Maybe maybe <laughs> not even that. So it was small. Do y'all take any contact while you were putting that one together? Um, For myself and uh, the Special Forces guys, um, nothing too serious. I mean, the SEALs and the commandos, they did a pretty good job of keeping keeping a distance from, you know, uh, I guess the Taliban and the checkpoint. So mm-hmm. they were out in firefights a good bit, but us inside yeah. a checkpoint wasn't. Now, if, if I'm remembering correctly, wasn't this the mission where they, like, they threw up an like, American flag and they were... Called out the trying Taliban to, like, on the loudspeakers and all that stuff. Yeah. Um... I don't know. I mean, they they could have been. Like I said, most of the time when I was in the bulldozer, I don't hear nothing. I really don't see sure. what's going on outside of it. So they could mm. have. I'm just, I'm not aware of it. I think it would have been at night when they were doing that. Um, yeah, I wasn't there with them at night because I would go in yeah. and refuel and get ready for the next day. Now, did the bulldozer stay down there and you just got transported down to the bulldozer or did you have to drive it back to the cop every day? I would drive it back to the cop every day. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's funny. I mean, lugging along down Route Brown, <laughs> waiting for that RPG to come skipping oh, across man. the hood of your bulldozer. Oh, man. Yeah, well. And this was after bulldozer... you got RPG'd, right? No, this was all before. Um, pretty before? much okay. after mm-hmm. I got RPG'd. I mean, our bulldozer missions were almost up. And um, that's when we started. Instead of bulldozing tree lines, that's when they started uh, bombing bombing tree lines. Yeah, <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> oh yeah. Thank you, General Petraeus or uh, General yeah, uh, General so, Abrams. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Thank you, General Abrams. <laughs> yeah, so that's when they started dropping them J dams. 
Yeah. Which I'm okay so. with. Oh, I'm down. Yeah. I, it was a good show that night. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was, uh, that bulldozer, it was very valuable to us. And, uh, heck, most of the time when I was out using the bulldozer, we'd be in firefights. And I, I, I didn't even know we were didn't in firefights. I didn't know one was kicking off. Yeah, we had a we had to cut a road from Route Brown going towards Najat one day, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I never looked off to the left side of my bulldozer. Always looked to the front, to the right, because that's where all my controls were, and I would look mm-hmm. to the back. Well, we were cutting that road that day. And you know how a rock hits your windshield mm-hmm. when you're going down mm-hmm. the road. I kept on hearing that. Well, I couldn't figure out what it was. Kept on hearing it. <laughs> kept on hearing it. I'm like, all right, what is this? So I finally Seven, stopped. Six, two. Yeah. Shut the bulldozer off. And um, I think it was second platoon. Um, their Max Pro and a couple of Matt Vs. I mean, they were just, their crow systems were going to town. We had been in a firefight and I didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, uh, and that's when I looked over at my glass, and my glass was all spider webbed, and it was yeah, it was seven six twos hitting it, <laughs> just rocking it, oh man, just rocking it, yeah, Jesus so, man, yeah, that's crazy. So I mean, that's that's one of the things I think was unique for for you guys as mechanics, and especially you because you were out there like leading the charge on a lot of those duties, and the bulldozer driving was. Just like the the wildness of that deployment for you guys, like how how did the how did the twenty twelve deployment compare to the twenty set uh, to a two thousand six deployment? Not not in like comparative as in you know what was worse or whatever. Just like what was the differences and how are they similar and things like that for you in your experience. Um. Well, I guess I can start off with a difference. Um, you know, the enemy we were fighting in Iraq. They had way more resources, you know, a 250 mm-hmm. pound, a 500 pound IED, you know, that was common. That was daily. Mm-hmm. And, um, even heck, we started running into the, was it the EF, EFPs? Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. And we started running into them and, you know, that was just, they had resources like no other. Then in uh, Afghanistan, it seemed like we have, or the Taliban had less resources but they were smarter on how to use those resources. You know, I, the similar things, I, I mean, I don't know. It just, they both suck. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it, uh, you know, it always yeah, tell everybody it's the, uh, it's the best, worst times of your life. So, I mean, right. It, yeah. You know, you, you always go and you see people, you know, get killed. It's just mm-hmm. that, that starts beating down on you. Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. Now, for your guys, this for a lot of them, this was their first deployment, right? Um, Sergeant Huggins and I think Lowry had been deployed to Iraq before. Sure, but the rest mm-hmm. of them, yeah, this was their first deployment. And how did you kind of approach? Leading them with the expectation, like, this is not going to be just sitting in the motor, motor pool fixing. Like, we're going to be doing more. We're going to be filling in for these infantry guys. I mean, I'm sure that's not something that hadn't even really crossed their mind. Um, I mean, were they pretty receptive to that? Did you have, 
you know, were, were they scared? Um, how did how did that kind of play out? Um, no. So you know, start hugging and his. I'm gonna call him his team. His team of mechanics. They were some pretty smart guys. You know, they were. Good. They had common yeah. sense. So you know, uh-huh. they knew the deal. They knew to go out there. You know, pay attention to what the other persons around you are doing, and just be aware. And you know, you know they did that. You know they yeah. they knew what they were getting into. So, you know, I just had to days they were down, give them a pep talk, or just you know, hey, it's it's what we're here for. You know, it's it's what you signed up to do. So we got to do it and think about it later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like that's one of the critical parts about this deployment for us, and I'm sure it's the same with most people's deployments, is that. The role of the support personnel, especially when you're talking these small bases, you know, yeah. when the infantry's out, they are they are driving trucks, they're gunning trucks, you know, they are out there on dismounted patrols, they're they're carrying stuff, you know, as an extra person just because we need extra people, and especially the longer that deployment goes on and the fewer people that we have, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. that job becomes way more important, and I I feel like that gets overlooked a lot. Um. And I, that's why we're really glad we have you on because it's a really important part of our deployment was just how often that happened, man. It happened a lot. And we were fortunate to have reliable dudes in that position. You know, like not, it's, it's not always, it's kind of a mixed bag, just like many other job. You know, some, some guys are pieces of shit and then some are super squared away. And I feel like on our mm-hmm. support personnel, for the most part, we were very, very fortunate, you know, and then oh, yeah. yeah. squared yeah, away yeah, and ready yeah. to go. Yeah, we had we had a good team to support y'all. I mean, even for the cooks, you know, yeah, yeah. them mm-hmm. them guys. I mean, Dango Hoxie was even going out getting in firefights, you know, and <laughs> well, he was shooting, <laughs> he was at, shooting Curtis, at us. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but to him, he was in a firefight shooting the bad guys. But, he was yeah. in a firefight. Yeah, I mean, yes, he was. You know, you know, no, well, that was Miguel and Tom Evans. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you know uh, that day. Yeah, man. Uh, I think you know, I came up off a mission, and somebody was like, "Hey, sir, oh, like you need to talk to Hoxie." I'm like, "Hey, what's going on?" He about killed all of us. I guess y'all were walking back to the vehicles, and he just starts shooting with a 240, something like that. No, we were on top of a grape hut. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, up on a great putt, and it was uh, shit was going down, and Hoxie just started laying down. To his credit, he started laying down Scunion on yeah. the fifty. Right? Yeah, it that, was a that, fucking that, fifty cow. They were getting shot at too. He just didn't made know where an from easy mistake. And, yeah. yeah, and you know, and in, in future engagements, he shot in the right direction. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> shit, I know, I know for a fact, I shot at our third squad at one point so yeah. it happens <laughs> <laughs> uh, i hope hoxie's watching this we love you hoxie i hope yeah. so too we do yeah. we're gonna have you on to talk about shrimp scampi though uh, shrimp scampi. Yeah. yeah you've ruined shrimp scampi for me hoxie thanks man forever <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i can't do it <laughs> but i mean yeah but we I mean, were in a unique position there yeah yeah the collection dudes were good and they contributed to the fight literally oh, in yeah. some cases literally. you know I mean, Minotaur down. We stuffed 
vehicles with with armorers, support personnel, yeah. cooks, oh, yeah. mechanics. We just grab people like, hey, you're gonna you're gun in the truck. You're you're gonna walk mm-hmm. down and help us pull Boyce out. Like everyone pulled their weight. Everyone was expected to pull their weight. And if they didn't pull their weight, they didn't hang around for very long. That's oh true. yeah, that's very true. Very true. Yep. Spot on. And <laughs> I think I think I'm pretty sure I'm accurate in saying this. Every single person on Cop Scar One Gar, every person had a cab or a CIB. All of them. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. I think so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which they, is probably they, oh, unusual. Everybody should have. Yeah. 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 It has to be unusual. I mean, obviously, you say a lot of things with exceptions, like, you know, in the Korengal, where literally their base is at the bottom of a mountain, they're getting shot at every day. Yeah, everyone's getting a, you know, a cab and a CIB there, too. But, um, you know, Sparwengar was a big base. We had a lot of people. There were a lot mm-hmm. of people who had jobs in which they probably never thought they'd ever have to go outside the wire for. And mechanics. <laughs> yeah. You know, the cooks. Um, you know, our intel guys all got into it. Yeah. Uh, and we're super appreciative that we had the support from you guys, both on the base and that you guys were like, hey, you need an extra guy? I'll go out with you. So oh, yeah, we appreciate that for sure. I mean, that's the thing, man, is, you know, John's a great example of that. As he walks away, he's got <laughs> he's got as many, if not more, close calls than all the dudes on the ground. Just because he was driving that fucking bulldozer. It's like a bullet <laughs> magnet. <Giant> bullet <laughs> magnet. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the fact well, that the he took an RPG round to, to the to... cab, you know. And you can, you oh, can yeah. see the heat melting off the glass. That's, that's intense, yeah. man. Oh, yeah. yeah no, that's... that one... Uh... That one rocked my dome that day. That oh, yeah, one, sure it did. That one definitely made the eyes cross. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it did, man. It's crazy. Well, I know, John, when we did the pre-interview, you said we, uh, one thing you really want to talk about was um, the stigma of mental health. Yes. And yes. You know, we had a really good conversation, and I want to continue that conversation because you and I have a few things in common in that category and that we both reached a point in our professional careers as a soldier where we realized that we had things unresolved um, and that it was best for us and for the people that we worked for in our command to make sure that got addressed. So the floor is yours here on, on this topic yes. and we'll, we'll chime in with you, but I want you to kind of guide it because I know it's something you're passionate about. Yep. So, um, you know, at, at this point of, what are we, 20 years at war now? Mm-hmm. You know, we we've heard mental health go get help there's help there you know it's it's just repetitive at this point but um man i'll tell you mental health it it sneaks up on you um it and it puts you in not a good place like you cannot fight that war by yourself and you know i i try to fight it for over nine years by myself and Mm -hmm. You know, it got to the point, it's just like, man, I'm depressed all the time. I'm in isolation. You know, I don't talk to my family. I don't talk to my friends. You know, it, it it's a bad place to be in. And um, it got to the point where I finally had to be honest with myself and notice, hey, there's something wrong here. Like, mm-hmm. they say, you know, they say asking for help is the hardest thing. But for me, it was being honest with myself and 
you know, then go in and ask for help. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so don't I don't care how big and bad you are, how tough you think you are, go get help because you, you can't fight that war by yourself. But I do want to share a couple of things that um, I just got out of seven weeks of therapy, and I would like to share uh, something that helped me get through therapy. And, um, you know, I'm not one that preaches to people, but... Um, you know, I see some Bible verses throughout my career that soldiers have tattooed on themselves, and they're pretty popular. And But there's one that was introduced to me when I was in therapy that I think is more important than the popular uh, Bible verses that we see soldiers talk about. So, sure. um, you know, the, the first verse that I want to talk about is Isaiah 6, 8, and... Um, Isaiah 6, 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, when sh Who shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. We've heard that. You know, we a, a lot of soldiers uh, tend to put that verse of, Hey, you know, I, I, uh, I joined the military. I'm ready to serve for my country. Send me. Um, so that's a popular. Then another popular one I see is Psalms 144.1. And that's, um, it says, Praise to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Um, like I said, that's another one that, you know, soldiers relate to. I'm in combat. or I'm getting ready for combat. Give me strength. Now, the third um, Bible verse I want to share with everybody and I have yet to seen, see anybody with this one tattooed on them. But for me, <laughs> uh, I wish I would have seen this Bible verse a long time ago. And uh, I hope I don't mess up the, the wording of this one because it's, it's one of the harder verses or the harder ones to say. And it's uh, Ecclesi, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. There we go. There you go. There we go. Uh, Bible school. What's up? Bible school. <laughs> so this this book talks about um, everything under heaven. There's a season, and it goes on to say uh, there's a time to be born, and there's a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted. All right. Now this. Next one, there's a time to kill, and there's a time to heal. Uh, a time to break yeah. down, and a time to build up. Hmm. Then it goes on to say, uh, there's a time to love, and a time to hate, and a time of war, and a time of peace. Hmm. Now, that, where it says there's a time to kill, and there's a time to heal, you know, for me in mental health, um, you know, that told me that I need to let go of everything that happened during deployments. I don't need to be in that mindset of killing and, you know, destroying everything. I need to start getting in the mindset of healing and building myself back up. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, it just, it, you can't be in that mindset anymore when, when you're not deployed. You, you gotta, you gotta give everything a break. You gotta build it back up.
Mm. It's tough for guys. You know, a lot of guys, um, you know, it's, there were kind of like two phases in the war. There was one where you're deploying every eight, every 12 months and you don't get that time to heal in between, you know, Mm -hmm. you're coming off the next deployment and you're training for the next one. Um, and that was a, you know, a necessity of the times, but also disservice by the army to not look out for its soldiers. Like, Hey, they don't just need 12 months off to decompress from the last deployment. They also need time to get better and get prepared before the next time they go out. You know, instead of a one-to-one, it probably should have been like a one-to-two, like yeah, two exactly. months of dwell time for every one month deployed kind of thing. And they, you know, we, um, you know, we learned our lesson to, for, to some extent and they're getting a lot better about that. But, uh, you know, now here we are, people aren't getting deployments and people can't let go. Like you said, they can't let go of the time that they were in Spurwangar, their time mm-hmm. in Panjway, or the time when they were in the shit with their buddies. And they continue to seek it out because it's not happening anymore. There are no more deployments. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can't let go. Um, and to those yeah, guys, yeah. I would encourage you to, to let go. Letting go is the hardest thing. It is, yep. Yep. So, but yeah, no, please go get help. Like, don't fight it. it you don't deserve it. Your family don't deserve it. Your friends don't deserve it. You know, and when you're fighting mental health, you're not living life. You're just existing. And, mm-hmm. and don't do that. Mm-hmm. Go live life. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll tell you, as someone who in, in experienced it myself, you don't see the signs initially that something's wrong. Um, you blame it on other things. For me, I became extremely irritable, angry. I never had an anger problem. I would get furious at the smallest, stupidest things. Uh, I would be unreasonable, um, impatient. And eventually, you know, it bled over into the cockpit. And that's when the professional side was like, hey, I can't, I can't be like that in the aircraft. Like, it's not safe. It's putting me and other people at danger. I need to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um. And we just all need to kind of have the self awareness to realize and something's something's wrong. To to take a step back, um, and let somebody else figure out what it is. Because I promise you, you can't do that. Like you said, you can't do that by yourself. Yep. Uh, you need you need someone else to do that for you. Yep. And uh, and I, when I was in treatment, uh, another thing that I had to realize is, you know, I had to put the effort in. Um, mm. when I was there, they're not going to do no voodoo on me. You know, they're, they're not going to sprinkle holy water on me and I was going to be okay. I had to learn mm-hmm. that I had to put the effort in and, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have to suck up your pride and put the effort in, but it's worth yeah. it at the end. Yeah, that's very true because it, it all originates in the mind. So it ends in the mind yep. and it's not, you know, there's not, there's no, uh, outside force that can shape that. It's not a cast you know, that you can throw on your broken arm or it's not a, right. you know, Tylenol you can take for, you know, a hurting brain or sore muscle or whatever it is within itself. So mm-hmm. oh, yeah. that's where the healing yeah, has to start too. That's how I was. You know, I was just trying to, I was just trying to hang in there until my 20 year retirement, you know, then after that mm-hmm. I was going to go get help. But I mean, it got to the point where I was having to take more and more medicine during the daytime and, mm. you know, it just got to the point I was taking so much medication that, you know, I didn't even remember what I was doing the day before that morning. 
And, you know, it just got to the point, it's just like, man, you know, uh, I need to go try this a little bit more natural. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. But yeah. Go get help. And <laughs> go get help. And, you know, the stigma is, is going away. You know, yeah. if you're if you're still serving and you served in the war and you have shit going on, you know, if you're if you feel like your command is an impediment to you getting help, go straight to behavioral health, bypass yeah. them, fuck mm-hmm. them, like seriously, fuck them. Um, they have no ability to stop you from doing that. Oops. Behavioral health will talk to you that day. They will they will find a way to get you help, and then they will help you go through the proper channels to make it legit, like going through your provider and through your command and stuff like that. But if your command isn't supportive, fuck them. And then the first thing you need to do is find your way to another command because you need to take care of yourself. Like most of the commands now are really good about making sure that you're taking care of because they recognize, like, yeah, they may not be able to have you on full capability for a few months, but if you get help, they got you for the rest of your career because you're good. And your head's right. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they stand in the way of it, you know, you're just going to get out and you're going to be gone and then you'll be another statistic to them. So go get help. Yeah. Well, John, yeah. Usually the way we end this is kind of giving you a chance to say what it is you want to say, but I think you kind of said it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but we'll give you one more chance. If there's anything else that you'd like to add before we close this thing out. Um, no, I'm just, uh, you know, Glad to hear from you guys again. I think what y'all got going is a very good thing. Um, you know, when you asked me if I would come on here, you know, I was scared. I was nervous, but um, I, I needed this. So, you know, thank you for inviting me on here, and uh, I su- support what y'all are doing. Well, thanks, Thank man. you for coming on. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's been eye-opening, too, because it's been a nice yeah. reminder of... Uh, the role that you poor bastards played bulldozing <laughs> pans way. <laughs> we need to make a bulldozer t-shirt. Fuck that be. That's a good, I, you know, yeah. I get behind that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All Tread right, on John. them. Tread on them. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pandway podcast. If you liked what you heard, head on over to Apple podcasts and leave us a five star review. New episodes every Monday on all major podcast platforms, Facebook, and YouTube. Visit www.thepandwaypodcast.com for more information.